Hey, good morning. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here. Awesome to see you. I want to say hello to everybody joining us online. And I just want to sort of um, piggyback on what Eli was saying about Haiti. You may or may not be aware of this, but we want to remind you that uh, we have global partners all over the world that we participate with. Every time that you give to Westbridge Church, every single dime that you give, we give a percentage of that away outside of the country, somewhere around the world, to our global partners. So when we send a team to Haiti, uh, what's awesome is... It's not just a team that's going to Haiti and it's not just a one-off thing. It's a true partnership. And we get to send a team to places around the world where you've, your generosity is already making a difference. So we get to send a team and say, hey, go there, participate, and just see what Westbridge Church's generosity is already doing. And I love that, that it's not just a one-off thing, but it's just this true partnership. And we've got several of those global partners. And as we continue to sort of come out of uh, COVID hibernation, we're going to continue to send more teams to more of those locations. So be on the lookout for that. But man, uh, thanks so much for your generosity. It's not just your prayers, but it's also your generosity because uh, you support our partners in Haiti every single month because of your generosity here. So just want you to know that and uh, just express our gratitude for being such a generous church. Now, we're wrapping up this series today. We've been in this series called uh, Your Future Self Will Thank You. And the whole idea behind this series has been that, you know, we all benefit from decisions that we made years ago. So what are the decisions that we're making today that will benefit the future version of ourselves? And, uh, Today, I got to tell you, there was uh, this last week, we were having some work done at our house. Uh, we, were having, uh, we were having a little uh, concrete patio put to the side of our garage. And there was a guy out there working. He's got a bobcat and he's kind of digging up the ground. And he, he went reverse. He hit a, a root with his bobcat and, uh, and, and, it, and it sent his bobcat to the left. And the bucket of his bobcat smacked into our gas meter and put a hole that big in the side of the gas meter. Now, yeah, exactly. You could hear it. As soon as I walked outside, he came rushing to our door and he's like, hey, you got to come out here. And I, I went outside and you could hear it. It's just like, just, and, and you could smell it. I mean, the whole neighborhood smelled like natural gas. And so uh, we quickly, you know, called 911 and the police came, the firemen came. There was a, one fire truck with, you know, a pickup truck. And then the, the big fire truck came, and then the police came, and then Centerpoint Energy came. It was so much chaos for about an hour. It looked like they were filming a reality TV show at our driveway. It was awesome. And... Uh, we got everybody out of the house, you know, we shut up the house and everybody went for a walk. <laughs> and uh, Fortunately, it just was outside and it all dissipated into the air. But man, for about an hour and a half, <clears throat> there was chaos. I mean, there was so much like just running around and trying to get that thing shut off. And, uh, you know, and I, I got to tell you, when you have a leak that size, they move quick. And uh, it was awesome to see. So a little bit of chaos this week, but let's be honest, none of us love chaos or tension uh, or, you know, something that feels out of control. Today, as we wrap up the series, I want to look at one brief story out of the book of Judges, which is a part of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And then I want to look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to people living in the Roman Empire. So first, let me recap this story from the Old Testament, and you'll see a lot of chaos going on here. In this time in human history, it's found in a, a, a document, a historical document called the Book of Judges. And it's called that because uh, God is establishing the nation of Israel. They don't have a king. The idea was that God would be their king. They would, they would follow him and he would be the one who guides them and directs them. But they needed someone uh, in person to kind of speak on God's behalf. And they had these judges. And uh, they had this pattern that they would follow where they would listen to the judges for a while. And then after a while, they'd kind of go their own way. 
Not that, not that different from you and I. And they would turn away from God. They would do their own thing. They would get in trouble. And then they would turn back to God for help. And so they had this pattern, this cycle of disobedience, which would lead to destruction. And then they would turn back to dependence on God. Disobedience and then destruction and then dependence on God. And so you get to this chapter 19. It's towards the end of this uh, historical document, the book of Judges. And it's chronicled all of the events that have taken place while the judges are overseeing the nation of Israel. And you get to chapter 19, and uh, there's only 21 chapters, and it's like the final story at the end of all of these chronicles. And it's, it's a pretty horrific story. I'll recap it for you. Uh, basically, there's 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. And between tribes, uh, one, one guy was traveling, and he was traveling from one area of the, of the nation to the other. And he's traveling with his concubine, and that's not really a word that we use very often in our culture, but a concubine, for lack of a better term, is essentially a sex slave. And he's traveling with her, and he gets to an area of town, a, a, a city called Gibeah. And in Gibeah, uh, they, they were like, this guy's a foreigner, and we're going to dishonor him. And it was one of the things in ancient uh, Near East civilizations that you did to dishonor someone that came into your town to let them know they're not welcome here. And the, the scriptures actually say that they wanted to rape him. Now, that's pretty graphic. And yet, uh, he... he was staying at someone else's house, and instead he pushes his concubine out the door to save himself, and the men from that community rape and kill her and leave her body outside of his door. Pretty, you're like, this is in the Bible? This is in the Bible. It's a historical document. It's chronic. Now, again, this is descriptive. It's just saying this is something that happened in history. And so he finds her body, and then he takes it and he cuts it into 12 parts and he sends a different part to each of the 12 tribes of Israel and he says, look at what happened. And now they're enraged that somebody from their nation would treat somebody else that way. And so in their rage, they decide we're going to get our armies together, 11 of the tribes, because this happened in the tribe of Benjamin. So the other 11 tribes, we're going to get our armies together and march against this 12th tribe and we're going to destroy them. So they go to battle, and they kill all but 600 men from the tribe of Benjamin. Now they have a problem. As they're about to completely wipe out this entire tribe, they realize we can't wipe out a whole tribe. They won't exist. We'll be a nation with 11 tribes instead of 12. And so then they decide we'll leave 600 men so that they can uh, eventually keep the, the lineage of that tribe going. But now we're, we've killed everyone else. Where, where are they going to get wives? They go to another area of their nation. They, they kill all the men in, uh, in that town and take 500 women from there and give them to these 600 guys. You're like, this is in the Bible. This is in the Bible. You should read your Bible. It's fascinating. And then there's still 100 guys who don't have wives, but the other tribes have made a vow before God, we will never give our daughters in marriage to the men of Benjamin. And they don't want to break their vow because they've made this vow to God. So instead, they say, hey, there's this festival. And at the end of this festival, the women will be traveling home. And in order for us not to break our vow, we've said that we won't give our daughters in marriage to anyone from the tribe of Benjamin. But we won't be breaking our vow if you kidnap them. So then they said, this is where they'll be. Find uh, someone for yourself, kidnap her and make her your wife, and at least that way you'll have a wife and we will not have broken our vow. Do you see how like messed up this is? It's like, what a weird loophole. And then the book of Judges ends. That's it. 
No emotionally satisfying ending. There's no pretty bow on the end of the package. It just ends. That's the last story that you hear. And then this is the final verse from the book of Judges. It says this. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And this is the result. Absolute chaos. Absolute chaos. This verse is very revealing because whenever you do whatever seems right in your own eyes, it very often leads to chaos. It leads to trouble. It leads to sometimes violence. It leads to harming others or harming yourself. And, it, and yet it's one of the most popular ideas in our culture even today. It's this idea that everybody can do whatever seems right in their own eyes and there's not going to be any consequences. This idea that I can do whatever I want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But here's what we discover, that whenever we do whatever we want to do, it often hurts someone else. That's just the reality. It's, it, there's this phrase in our culture, it's one of my least favorite phrases. Just live your truth or speak your truth. Which just as a practice in logics, as soon as you put your in front of the word truth, it's no longer truth because it's subjective, but we won't go there. See, here's the reality. We just want to live however we want to live and think that we won't experience the consequences. And this is exactly what was happening in the book of Judges. Everybody did whatever seemed was right in their own eyes. And the problem with living that way is that somewhere along the way, when you do what, you, what seems right to you, you're wrong. In fact, in uh, the book of Proverbs, King Solomon writes this. And we started our whole series with this verse. We're going to close it with this verse as well. There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. There's a path. Solomon says, and we've all said this before, right? Well, it seemed like the right thing to say. I mean, it seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like the best decision to make in the moment. And did you know that you can actually be 100% sincere about believing that it's the right decision and also at the very same time be 100% wrong? You can be sincerely, totally wrong. Fascinating, right? Solomon says there's a way, there's a path that people can get on and they think they're on the right road and they, and they believe it with all their heart, but then all of a sudden they end up at a destination that they didn't want to be at. And then they, they sort of wake up and they go, how did I get here? This isn't where I wanted to be. And that's because you can be sincerely and totally wrong at the same time. You can be 100% sincere and 100% wrong. Think about uh, the Mayan calendar. You may have sincerely believed that the world was ending in 2012, but guess what? You're still here. Your sincerity didn't make it true. Let's go back a little further. How about Y2K? You're like, don't even talk to me about Y2K, okay? Oh my gosh, because, you know, your bomb shelter still has six radioactive winters worth of food in the bunker. You're like, yep, I missed the boat on that one. But it seemed right at the time. The problem with doing whatever you think is right in your own eyes is that you can be wrong. And oftentimes what happens is you do hurt others or you hurt yourself in the process. Because we've all had the things that we thought seemed like the right thing in the moment. And then when we get to the end, when we get to the path, when we get to the destination that that path ultimately led to, we put it in the regret column. And we go, man, I believed it sincerely, but it led me down a path that I didn't want to be on. And so as we look at this today, 
as we sort of unpack this idea together, I want to look at this section of this letter written by the Apostle Paul to followers of Jesus living in the Roman Empire. And this is probably outside of the life and teachings of Jesus. The most, this letter, it's called Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, In our modern vernacular, we call it the book of Romans, but it's really a letter that Paul wrote to people living in the Roman Empire. And outside of the life and teachings of Jesus, it's probably the most complete, full, clear writing about what it looks like to follow the ways of Jesus in a non-Jesus culture. And so Paul writes it to followers of Jesus living in the Roman Empire, and basically there's so much of it that applies to us today. And as we look at these verses, uh, Paul gives his readers really four big challenges to help avoid chaos and help live the kind of life that God wants us to live. So let me give you these four challenges that I think apply to us today as well. The first one is this. Number one, recognize the greatness of God. Recognize the greatness of God. Now, uh, several years ago, when my son Leighton was younger, he got some Legos for Christmas. And I remember we were putting these Legos together, these different Lego sets that he got. And when you're at a certain age, man, Legos are everything, right? And uh, so he got these Legos, and we're putting them together. And for some reason, we're trying to build this house, this building uh, that was a part of this Lego set, and we could not get it together. I mean, we tried following every, the instructions, and it's like, man, it's just not working. And if you know Legos, outside of the fact that they are brutal to step on in the middle of the night, uh, you know that there's typically this big base that has all of these, you know, it's like the foundation, all these connectors, and then you build on top of that, and all the bricks stack together on that. Well, the truth is, we didn't realize we were using the wrong base. And so we're trying to build this thing, and it just would not fit together. It would not fit together, and we're getting so frustrated. And then we're like digging and digging, and we found the actual, the the correct foundation that we were supposed to be using. And the reality was, until we got that foundation right, no matter how we put that thing together, it was not going to work. And the truth is that our lives are the same way. That you can build and build and build and build and build, but unless you're building on the foundation for which your life was created, it's just a series of frustrations. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people living in the Roman Empire, and he writes this at the end of chapter 11. He says, yes, God made all things, and everything continues through him and for him. To God be the glory forever. At the end of chapter 11, Paul says, I want you to recognize the greatness of God. He says, look, here's what you need to understand. We recognize that there's gravity that holds us to the planet. We recognize that, uh, you know, even in modern day science, we have come to the conclusion that we recognize that our cells reproduce on a regular basis. It's unbelievable. We study things like quantum physics now. I mean, it's, it's crazy the things we've discovered. It's unbelievable that we can breathe in oxygen and expel carbon dioxide. And while we can explain that from a scientific sort of narrative, We don't understand how it works, like how that actually sustains. There is a mystery. There is something uh, miraculous and supernatural about that. And Paul says, God created it, and God sustains it. It was God's idea, and he's the engine behind it. He put it all together, and he keeps it moving. And so Paul says, look, before anything else, let's just recognize God's greatness. Let's just recognize that everything exists because of God and everything sustains through him and his power and his strength. And folks, you and I were created by God and for God. 
And until we recognize that and build our lives on that foundation, life is never really going to make sense. It's going to be connecting brick after brick. It's going to be building our lives. But until we build on the foundation, we're just doing what seems right in our own eyes. If we're not on the right foundation. And we, we set new goals every year. And we try to improve every year. And New Year's resolutions and become a better version of ourselves. But unless you're building on the foundation of who God is, you're going to find yourself dissatisfied and frustrated. Because the scriptures tell us, Jesus tells us, Paul echoes this, that our lives are to be built on the foundation of God. And at some point in our lives, all of us are going to bump into this question. Who is God? Who is Jesus? And what do I do with that? And I want to respectfully submit that you spend some time in your life wrestling with that question. And here's why. Whatever you believe about God... Or whatever you don't believe about God, at some point in your life, it bleeds its way into every aspect of your life. It is the foundation upon which your life is being built, one way or another. And regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, what you believe about God becomes the foundation that you build your life on. What you don't believe about God oftentimes becomes the foundation of what you build your life on. So Paul starts off in chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, he says, recognize the greatness of God. He created it all and he sustains it all. And then he says this, number two, I want you to remember the mercy of God. Remember the mercy of God. So he moves into chapter 12 and in verse 1, listen to what he writes. He says, so I beg you, brothers and sisters... This word so is coming right off of the tag of, of the last verse. God in his greatness keeps all things going. So I beg you, brothers and sisters, because of the great mercy God has shown us. Now Paul has been writing this letter. He's writing this document. And he's going through all of these different ideas about God's mercy. And again, it's called Romans because Paul's writing to people in Rome. It's one of the greatest empires in the world. And yet Rome, with all of her armies and all of her conquests and all of her accomplishments, can't figure out how this little speck in the far corner of their empire is somehow turning the world upside down. It's unbelievable. And this guy from Israel, this no-name Jewish carpenter who grew up in this nothing town of Nazareth, somehow he claimed to be God. He's walking around claiming to be God. And that's not new for them. They had a lot of people who claimed to be God in that time. And yet, what's different is this guy seems to be able to back it up. The rumors start to spread. And blind people can see. And lame people can walk. And paralyzed guys are going to dances. And lepers, people who had leprosy, are shopping for bro tanks so they can show off their new skin. It's unbelievable. And people who were dead are now alive and there's this buzz all over the Roman Empire. And it's not just the power, it's also the teaching. It's the type of teaching that nobody found in church. It's the type of teaching nobody found in the temples to their gods. It's the type of teaching nobody found in the Jewish synagogues even. It's the type of teaching that gave people hope and gave people truth. It's the type of teaching that didn't say, here's how you get to God. Here's how you get to God. Here's how you get to God. It's the type of teaching that instead, instead said this, hey, here's everything that God has done to get to you. And it blew people away. And Rome is looking at this, this Jesus and this, this buzz around the whole Roman Empire. And they're going, your own religious leaders didn't even believe in this guy. In fact, they had him killed. And normally, when you kill the leader of a cult, the cult dies with them. 
When you kill the leader of a cult, the movement ends. The followers become scared and the movement just dissipates. And you guys killed the leader of this cult, what we believe to be a cult, and the movement, like, grew. And these guys aren't afraid of death. In fact, they claim that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. And so Paul sits down and he starts to write this document, this letter to the Romans. And he starts in chapter 1 and he says this, Hey, Rome, I, I know you believe there's all kinds of gods and you have all these temples to all these different gods that you worship, but I'm here to tell you there's only one God. And then he gets to chapter 2. He says, and here's the deal. You can't be good enough to get to this God. I know in all of your temple worship and all of your gods, the idea is what are the things that I have to do to get to God? And I'm just telling you, you can't do enough to get to God, to this one God. You can't do it. You can't measure up. He gets to chapter 3 and he goes, we've got a problem. If there's one God and you can't measure up, then we've all blown it. And then he gets to chapters 4 and 5 and he says, but here's what God's done to get you back. God sent Jesus into this world and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that's really good news. And he gets to chapter 6 and goes, and it's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't behave your way into it. You can't church attend your way into it. You can't Bible read your way into it. Okay? It's a gift and all you can do is be thankful and receive it. And then he gets to chapter 7 and 8. And in chapter 7 and 8, he says, now, here's the deal. You've been made new because of God. God saved you. He rescued you. But here's the deal. Uh, the old you is still in there trying to fight with the new you. And so you're going to feel this intense internal battle as the old you still wants to do the things that the old you likes to do. And the new you is saying, nope, this is God's way of doing things. And you're going to face that struggle. But at the end of chapter 8, he goes, I just want you to know, in spite of that struggle, it's normal. We all experience it. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that is found in Jesus. Then he gets to chapter 9. And when he gets to chapter 9 and 10, he says, because of that, God adopts you into his family. You're not a slave, you're a son, you're a daughter. That's how God sees you. You can call him father. And then he gets to chapter 11. He says, the message isn't just for Jewish people, it's for everybody. It's for everybody because of the greatness of God. And now we're in chapter 12 and he says, so I beg you, brothers and sisters, because of the mercy that God has shown us, because of that, because of God's mercy, when's the last time that you intentionally paused and reflected on God's mercy in your life? When's the last time you intentionally paused and reflected on the fact that I didn't deserve what God's given me? I love that we get to do baptism. You see the baptism tank over here. We're doing baptism tonight with people. And I want to encourage you to do a couple things. If you've never been baptized in water, I want to encourage you to show up tonight to get baptized in water. Because here's what you're saying. God, I'm intentionally remembering your mercy. And in water baptism, we put to death the old me in a watery grave. We hold you underwater till the sin bubbles just rise to the surface. <laughs> just kidding. We put the old you to, to death in a watery grave, and then it, you rise to new life with Jesus, and it's symbolic, so, so nothing happens. People don't float out of the water on a cloud with a halo, okay? Nobody graduates to Jesus Jr., but here's what it is. It's this moment where we recognize and we pause and we intentionally remember the mercy of God. God, you've been merciful to me. I can be a new person because of you. And when's the last time you just remembered God's mercy in your life? The other thing I want to encourage you, those of you who have been baptized, to show up tonight and cheer people on. Because this is an exciting thing. And it's a, it's a way for us as a faith community to intentionally remember God's mercy to us. See, I don't follow Jesus because 
the Bible says to. I don't follow Jesus because the church says to. I don't follow Jesus because I'm afraid of what God's going to do to me if I don't. I follow Jesus because of the mercy God has shown me. I love God because he first loved me. I love that. It is his kindness that won me over. Paul writes later on in this, in this book in Romans, this letter to the Romans, he says, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that causes us to want to turn our way of living. He doesn't say it's the shame of God, it's the guilt of God, it's the oppression, it's the, it's the wrath of God that makes me turn. He goes, no, it's the, when we recognize how kind God has been to us, it causes us to go, man, I want to follow his ways. And he wants a relationship with me in spite of all that I've done? That blows my mind. That blows my mind. And so we, we, Paul says, I want you to recognize God's greatness, and I want you to remember his kindness. Recognize his greatness, remember his kindness. In fact, uh, I love this. One of my buddies recently got a couple of tattoos on the inside of his arms. So that way every morning he can flex his muscles and read them. And it says, God saved uh, God made, Christ saved. God created us and sustains us, and through Jesus, we get to live in his mercy. I love that. Such a great reminder. And that leads us to our third challenge. And I promise you, this third one, if you will put this into practice, your future self will thank you. Respond in obedience to the ways of God. Paul continues. Paul says, God is the foundation of all things. And he created everything, and he's the sustainer of all things. And then because of the great mercy that he's shown us, he continues, offer your lives as a living sacrifice to him, an offering that is only for God and pleasing to him. Considering what he has done, it is only right that you should worship him in this way. Paul says, I want you to offer a sacrifice, and your life as a sacrifice, that's how you worship God. Paul says, look, when you sing songs to God and you lift your hands, like, that's great. I love that. That's a great way to, to honor God and to worship God and praise God. But that should be the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. The way that you worship God is how you live your life every single day. The way that you worship God is by offering your life as a living sacrifice. You're like, well, what does that mean? Come on, Paul. Like, that's a lot of Bible gibberish, right? Well, Paul's audience would have understood this so well, and here's why. In, in the Roman Empire, and even in Judaism, the way that you worship God was you go to the temple. Whatever, there were temples in every city to every different God, and the way that you worship that God is you would go to that temple, you would present a sacrifice. Oftentimes that meant some type of animal. Oftentimes that meant a goat or a bull or a lamb. And you would, you would slaughter it, and you would put it on the altar and burn it, and the incense would rise up, and then that God, whatever God you were worshiping, would be pleased because... You killed an animal and burned it for them. But that was the culture. Even in Judaism, that's how they believed, okay, we honor God when we do this. And so they understood worship is this sacrifice that I bring to God. And yet, Paul says, no, I'm going to flip the switch. In fact, God doesn't want you to sacrifice yourself on some altar somewhere. God just wants you God wants you to be a living sacrifice. He wants you to offer your life to him because of the mercy that he has shown you. Well, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, here's what Paul says, and here's how he shows us how to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. He continues in the next verse. 
don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will be able to understand and accept what God wants for you. You will be able to know what is good and pleasing to Him and what is perfect. This is the toughest for all of us. This is so difficult. It's difficult for me. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the current culture. Well, why? Well, because you gave yourself to God. You're, the one that you're serving, the one that, the one that you're following is not the ideas of current culture. Don't follow culture in your words and your actions. Because the direction of culture is always set by the emotions and the feelings of its populace. People just doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. Remember when you were a kid and you're like, man, I can't wait till I grow up and I can be just like everybody else. No. No one ever says that. And yet it happens all the time. Because when you do what everybody else does, then you become just like everybody else. And Paul says, God in his greatness created all things, including you. And then in his kindness, he showed you mercy when you didn't deserve it. And if you understand the kindness of God, then don't allow the pattern of doing whatever seems right based on what culture says. Don't let that lead your life. When you bump into things, when you bump into an issue, when you bump into a topic, and whatever culture says seems to contradict whatever God says, go with what God says. Even if you don't like it, even if you disagree with it, even if it makes you uncomfortable. And I'll be honest with you, there are parts of the teachings of Jesus that I flat out don't like. I don't like to follow them. I, I, they make me uncomfortable. There are parts that I don't even agree with. There are parts of, the, that, uh, of Jesus' teaching that just make me so frustrated. But I've made a decision to trust in the God who created me in his greatness and in the God who rescued me in his kindness. There's parts of following Jesus that I just don't like. What Jesus says about how we're to treat people who mistreat us, I'm frustrated with that. I don't like it. He says to love your enemies. That is not my go-to, okay? That's not my default setting. When Jesus says, here's how I want you to handle your finances, and I want you to be super generous with what I give you, I'm like, I kind of like keeping more. Not super, it's a little frustrating, if I'm honest, right? What, what Jesus says, here's how you handle marriage, and here's how you handle sexuality, and here's how you handle parenting, and here's how you prioritize different things in your life. And it's like, I wouldn't have put that at the top of the list, Jesus. Just being honest with you. Would have done that a little further down the totem pole. In other words, here's the question every single one of us needs to wrestle with. Will my feelings, my emotions, be God in my life? Or will I let God be God in my life? It's a tough question, but it's a simple question. What is going to guide my life? What am I going to allow to be the driving force in my life? Am I going to let my feelings and my emotions drive my life and make decisions based on what I think seems right to me in the moment? Or am I going to say, okay, God, I trust that your way is best. And sometimes it frustrates me and sometimes I don't agree, but I trust you, so I'm going to follow you. Don't do whatever seems right in your own eyes or in the eyes of culture. Paul says, think differently based on the greatness of God, based on the kindness of God, and you will start to understand what God wants for you. So here's the question, right? And this is for every one of us. This is a question that we've got to wrestle through daily. God, right now, this is what seems right to me in the moment. I mean, it seems like this would be good for me, but 
What do you say? Am I going to let what I think seems right guide my life? Or am I going to do what I know you're telling me to do? And I'm just telling you, if you'll go with what God says a month from now and a year from now and five years from now and 30 years from now, your future self will thank you when we respond in obedience to the ways of God. And oftentimes when we don't understand why in the moment, clarity comes on the heels of obedience. And once we obey, we look back and we go, oh, now I see the pitfall that I avoided. Now I see uh, the danger that, that, he, that God kept me out of because I did things his way. And oftentimes you can't see it, but clarity often comes on the heels of obedience. Here's the fourth thing. Respond in humility to the people of God. Respond in humility to the people of God. As Paul continues to write about this, I love that he doesn't leave out this crucial element. You cannot grow in your love and relationship with God without growing in your love and relationship with the people God's put in your life. It's not a vertical only type of relationship. It's vertical and it's horizontal because every one of us are created in the image of God. And so in the next verses, Paul continues and he says this, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. We belong to each other. You cannot grow in your love for God and not be connected in some way, shape, or form to his church. The church is the body of Christ. We belong to each other. We need each other. The body needs you, and you need the body. That's just the way God created it to be. And Paul says to think that you can grow in your faith and your relationship with God, that it's only this way, and you can do that apart from the rest of the body. He goes, that's just kind of arrogant. He said, you're thinking of yourself as better than you ought to because we belong to each other and we need each other and nobody grows on their own. And I hear people say this sometimes, that, man, I just, don't, I just don't need organized religion. And I can promise you, disorganized religion is just as bad. But here's the truth. I've heard people say this, that uh, I'm just, I'm, my faith grows when, when I'm away from the church because, you know, the church, it's, it's messy and it's complicated. It's filled with people who are hypocrites and, uh, you know, I, I, just, I just do better when it's just me and God. Here's the problem with that type of thinking. And I understand where it comes from, but here's the problem. I will be the first to recognize that the church is messy and flawed and filled with imperfections because it's made up of people who are messy and flawed and filled with imperfections. This guy included. Okay? In fact, the people next to you are messy and flawed and filled with imperfections. The people in your living room are messy and flawed and filled with imperfections. Look up and down your row. Those people ain't putting the saint in St. Michael. All right? I'm just saying. That's just the reality. The church is messy and flawed and filled with imperfections. And God always works through messy and flawed and imperfect people. It's just how God works. But did you know that throughout the scriptures, the church is also described as the bride of Christ? And I hear people say like, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I just don't like the church. That's like saying at your next barbecue to your neighbor, like, hey, dude, I really like you, but I can't stand your wife. 
I don't think that would fly very well. I love the fact that we have online options, that people can engage with us online, that we can reach more people than we've ever reached before, and that we can tune in, and that people who aren't able to be with us in person can engage with us. I love that. I don't ever want that to go away. I think it's an incredible tool. But please don't make the mistake of thinking that following Jesus is about listening to sermons. That following Jesus is about hearing a message or hearing a talk or hearing some content about a particular topic. That's great. It's a starting point. We need teaching. We need information to inform us so that we can make decisions about how we move forward and grow. But if following Jesus is all about listening to sermons, then none of us should be here. We should just be podcasting constantly. The truth is, following Jesus is about living out the way of Jesus in community with other people. We belong to each other. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. You're a part of the body. You need the body, and the body needs you. And somewhere along the way, you have to find somewhere where you can connect with people, eyeball to eyeball, because you can't one another one another without another. Does that make sense? And the way of Jesus is all about love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another. Do you know what the word encourage means? It means to instill courage. And you can't instill courage in another without having another. You can't forgive another. You can't bear one another's burdens. You can't love one another. You can't serve one another. You can't encourage one another. You can't do these things if it's all just about content consumption. I love that we get to do this. Hear my heart on this. I love that we get to do that. I love this tool that allows us to do that. But please don't make the mistake of thinking following Jesus is all about listening to a sermon and moving on with your week. Following Jesus is about taking what you're learning and applying it in the context of community with other people. What if we decided in 2021 that we were just going to make it a priority to connect in some way with the church? That might mean that you engage with us online and you participate in a small group. That might mean that you show up here on Sundays. That might mean that you join a serving team. But somewhere along the way, you decide this isn't just an online thing only for me, but that I can use that as a tool. But somewhere, I engage with the body of Christ with other people. What if we made that a priority in 2021? How would that impact you as you one another one another? How would it impact your family, your career, your finances, your friendships, the way that you do marriage or parenting or relationships or the way that you handle your resources. Because of the foundation of your life is meant to be built on God and who he is. And the way that you live that out is in the context of community in the body of Christ. And so here's what you need to know, bottom line. Faith is not a performance-based religion. It is a trust-based relationship. It isn't about me checking the boxes to get to God. It's about the fact that God has already come to me and the question is, do I trust him? Now, over and over and over again, uh, throughout the years, uh, my kids, we have this conversation probably once a week. Uh, and uh, all through, uh, you know, my kids growing up, my oldest is 18, my youngest is 6. We've had this conversation where they ask us why. Now, your kids probably never ask why. Probably just our kids, but only about 40 times a week. And they, it'll be like, hey, we, here's what we want you to do. Here's what, here's what we're asking you to do. Oh, why? And here's the interesting thing, right? As a parent, you're like, well, I have a different perspective than you do as a six-year-old. 
I see things differently at 41 than you do at six. It's just a different world. And, and sometimes my perspective, I can't even explain it to you because in your six-year-old world, you wouldn't even be able to comprehend why I'm asking you to do what I'm asking you to do. So this goes on and they ask why and they go, why? And then it, inevitably throughout all of my kids, you know, they know this question is coming if they go and ask why long enough and fight it long enough. Hey, do you trust me? Oh, yes. Right? And every, every parent knows that. It's like it's the knee bend, seal, you know, head to the ceiling, heavy sigh. All at once. It's amazing. It's intuitive for kids. <sighs> yes. Okay. Have I ever done anything that would cause you not to trust me? <sighs> no. Okay. So listen, I can't explain it to you. And you're not going to be able to wrap your brain around this. But do you believe, do you trust that I actually want what's good for you? Yes. Okay, then just do it. And sometimes this is how our relationship with God is. God says, here's how I want you to live. I want you to love your enemies. Oh, why? <laughs> hey, I've, I've blessed your life so much. I want, I want, I've entrusted you with these resources, and I want you to be generous with what you, I've given you. <sighs> hey, you know what? I want you to connect in community. And it's going to be a sacrifice. And I want you to love well and serve well. And I want you to give of your time and give of your energy and give of your resources because it's the best way to live. <sighs> and we can't fully understand it sometimes from our perspective. But here's the question. God goes, hey, do you, do you trust me? I see things from a different vantage point than you. Do you trust that I have your best interest at heart? And if the answer is yes, then we go, okay, there's some things that I don't understand. God, this is a totally different way of thinking than I've ever thought before. And some of it is even really frustrating and I don't like, but I trust you. I'm not going to let feelings, my emotions, I'm not just going to do what seems right in my own eyes. I actually trust you because I believe that in your greatness, you created me and you sustained me. And I believe that in your kindness, you rescued me from the consequences of my own sin. So I'm going to say yes to your way of living life, even when it's uncomfortable, even when I can't understand it, even when it bumps against the grain of everything that my culture is doing. I trust you. I'm going to follow you. Paul says it's in that response that we discover what is good and pleasing and perfect. And isn't that what we want anyways? And isn't that what we want for our future self? Something that is good and pleasing and perfect? That's what God wants for us. So why not just submit our life to God's ways and engage with the body of Christ and trust Him? And if you've always seen this as a performance-based religion, and this is eye-opening for you, you don't have to behave your way into it, but it's actually something that God has moved in our direction, and now it's just about trusting what God has already done. If you've never seen it that way, maybe you've never been invited. The truth is you don't behave your way into a relationship with God. God moved towards you, and He loves you. He created you. He sustains you. He wants good for you, and he just invites you to live life his way because when you do that, when you give him control of your life, you submit to doing life the way God wants you to live, you discover that's the foundation that he wants you to build your life on. And when you do that, your future self will thank you. So if you're here, if you're watching online, if you've never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family, you can do that right where you sit. Just agree right here with this prayer as we close. God. Please forgive my sins. 
God, there's been so many areas of my life where I just did what, what seemed right in my own eyes. And man, I look back and that caused a lot of chaos, a lot of tension, a lot of problems and brokenness. And I'm so glad that you moved in my direction. And so I want to say yes to your invitation to be a part of your family, to be your son, to be your daughter. And then I want to submit my life to you. I, I trust that your way of living is the best way to live. So help me to follow you and to trust you and to follow your way of living as best as I can from this moment on. And God, for every single one of us who are doing our best to follow you each and every day, this is a daily question. Will I let my feelings guide me? Will I just do what seems right in my own eyes? Or will I actually obey the ways of God, even when it's uncomfortable and even when I don't understand? And I pray that as we sift through that in the various areas of our own lives, give us the wisdom to know how to respond to your ways and then give us the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.